0: Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring.
1: Welcome back to There's No Business Like. I'm Josh Benson in Marion, Illinois, and I'm here with my friend, Brian. Hey, Josh, Brian Zelmer from KU Presents. And Katie.
0: Hey, Katie Miller with Midland Center for the Arts. Kevin.
1: Kevin Maynard, Quad City Arts. And Danielle.
0: Danielle Van Hook, the Alden in McLean, Virginia.
1: I've got a question for you, Well, like, Whenever you were young, what chores or tasks did your parents have for you to do that instilled a work ethic in you?
0: I did like a lot of the general stuff, but the job that I had religiously was ironing. And there would be a stack. and i it would it would take forever to iron.
2: Danielle, just stop you one second.
0: <laughs> um for the listeners under thirty, can you explain
1: what ironing is?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I just don't do it now very often.
1: I love ironing. I love ironing and washing dishes by hand. Those are like the worst. Those are the worst chores. (laughs) They're mindless and they're something that I can do and my mind can do whatever while I'm doing those things. And I just, it's something that I'm doing that's productive and I'm doing it with my hands. And at the same time, mentally I can be processing other things.
3: So the chore I did as a child or had to do as a child that I like had to do consistently and really hated, but I think probably instilled the work ethic was weeding the garden. My dad is obsessed with gardening and he put in like a, a really nice garden in our backyard. When I was younger, I hated it. And I was just like, why do I have to do this? But I think as I got older, I like learned to understand that like you have to maintain the things that you want to be nice um, and it takes time and effort to cultivate something. And then once I got into like being able to like listen to music on my headphones and go out there in the sunshine, like I think I appreciated it a lot more as like more of a meditative exercise. But yeah, I really hated weeding the garden when I was younger.
4: Most of my chores were just kind of think like, general things that the kids do, like cleaning up the house. And then I think consistently I was in charge of mowing the lawn once I was able to, but I think partly because I loved it and I still love it. I think mowing grass, weed eating, cutting down trees, stuff like that is, is fun. We always lived in the country. So that was, there was always plenty of that to do.
2: I've mentioned before that I'm a Gen Xer, like stereotypical latchkey kid. And my parents were divorced. My mom was working like three jobs and I was the oldest of, of three kids. And so we basically were on our own quite a bit and did everything. So, you know, just like all of you washed the dishes, did the vacuuming, had to do the laundry, had to mow the lawn, had to take out the garbage.
1: For me, it was like the one thing that stands out. I mean, there were tons of tasks. My dad worked us very hard as children and instilled a work ethic that has persisted. But like the one thing that at four years old, my brother and I were responsible for taking the big log piles and moving them into the basement by the wood burner. You know, we'd have our little red wagon, and then we'd have a chute that we dropped the logs down once we moved them with a the red wagon, and that was a big thing for me. But Jacob Deaton, um, he worked a lot as a kid as well, and his father instilled a work ethic in him. You'll hear a lot more about that in our conversation, so Enjoy. <laughs>
5: Hey everybody, this is Jacob Deaton from the Georgia Players Guild.
1: Hey Jake, thanks for joining us today, man. Hey man, thanks for having me. I want to start with, how did you get into music in the first place? Did you, were you into music as a kid? Like, How did you get into uh, being passionate about music to start with?
5: I got into music as a kid. I, I was my first kind of exposure to maybe the effects of music or just live music in general. I remember being Working at my uh, job when I was in high school, at this place called the Ogle House Inn. It's like a bed and breakfast in my little hometown of VV, Indiana. And one of the cooks had an acoustic guitar. And on after like the big dinner rush, you know, where everything is kind of subsided, everybody kind of like migrated outside before we had to clean the kitchen and go home. And uh, this cook like pulled out an acoustic guitar and started singing like you know, Alice in Chains and like Radiohead songs and, you know, strumming it, and, you know, nothing super technical or anything, but just, you know, immediately everybody's just watching and observing. And I was like, that's the coolest thing. I was like, music rules. Now I'm, now I'm like, that was the first time I'd really experienced any sort of like super live music. I think from a super personal level, my parents had taken me to like a John Cougar Mellencamp concert because they denied me the opportunity to see Counting Crows on their August and Everything After tour because uh, they thought I was too young and they didn't want to expose me to any like drugs or whatever, um, nor did they trust the people that offered me the free tickets. So I never forgave them for that and still have not forgiven them for that. So I, I saw this guy play. Immediately I was hooked. And um, and so that uh, that made me to want to get an instrument whenever I, uh, you know, growing up in school but my parents weren't really into music they were more like jocks and that kind of thing begged and begged and begged for a guitar a drum set something they were like I was like can I get a drum set they said absolutely not and then they say I was like can I get a guitar and they were like just no stop asking us these questions so I I got a guitar or I got a um I got my first car I drove to Cincinnati which was about 60 miles away this is obviously before MapQuest you just had to know where the music store was or had a listing in a newspaper, if anybody could even imagine living in a time and day like that. I went and bought a drum set with money that I had saved from my gig uh, working at the restaurant without my parents knowing and stuck it in a church so they would not find out about my purchase because I knew they didn't go to church. And I didn't really go to church either. I, at the time, I mean, I, I just knew a friend of mine that had, his dad was a pastor and I was like, can I put a drum set in your church? And he was like, okay, I bought a drum set. And then I never told my parents about it. They never found out about it in school. I just immediately just had this, you know, drum gig, right. You know, out of nowhere. And they're like, how do you know how to play drums? And I was like, ah, you know, just band class or something, you know, like blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and so they never found out that I bought this like underneath their nose or anything. And so I would go there every Sunday and play drums. And that's kind of how I got involved uh, with music from the
1: start. Let's fast forward to, to now. You're not a drummer. No. <laughs> so... Um... So th- there's a part there that we're missing. Wow. Yeah, Can you yeah, fill that part in a little bit.
5: Yeah, I'll keep going. I get a guitar when I'm a senior in high school. After my senior year in high school, they finally, as a senior present, they let me go out and buy with my own money a guitar. I learned like three or four chords. You know, I learned like Pink Floyd's "Wish You Were Here," as anyone should when they first learn how to play guitar. And then I immediately went in the military, and I was not for a music job. It was just an airfield management situation. While I was deployed in Bosnia in 2000... 2002-2003, I met a Bosnian pianist. You go to church when you're deployed because it's like an hour off of work guaranteed like by the military, they can't tell you no, you can't go to church service. And when you're deployed, you work like seven days a week, every day for 12 hours or whatever, it's like insane. I was like, well, immediately I'm religious again and I wanna go to church. I met this guy, this Bosnian pianist, he played like every style underneath the book. They hired him to basically come in off base every Sunday to play for all the worship services. And I just thought he was super impressive. So I got to know him. He started giving me like music lessons. I would buy his kids like cool Nikes and ship them over, you know, uh, or like him some jazz records or something like that, you know, that he really liked Herbie Hancock. He loved Herbie Hancock. So I'd buy him Herbie Hancock uh, CDs. And shout out to um, uh, Zlatan wherever you are, if you're still with us, cause he was a pretty older cat and I've lost touch with him for well over almost two decades now. But you know, I got back to America from Bosnia and the last like half of the year uh, or last eight months of my military career, I just kind of immersed myself in guitar and music and stopped kind of doing all the dumb young 20 year old things that you used to do. And so I got out, I went to the Atlanta Institute of Music. I begged for them to get into school. They eventually said uncle and said yes. You know, I graduated Atlanta City Music as a guitar player in uh, January of 2006, or I started in January 2005, finished in January 2006, because it's just, at the time, it was just a vocational program It was only meant for like a year uh, full-time or two years half-time. And it was just like, you just get a certificate and there's, it wasn't really accredited by the state of Georgia like it is now. Shout out to AIM for all the love, but. What
1: genre of guitar was your focus at that point? Uh, It was it was literally like just
5: learn about guitar, learn scales, learn chords, learn all the basics of all these different styles from like pop, country, rock and roll, classical, jazz. It's like a general synopsis of like snapshot of like all the things like you walk out of there learning about like five jazz songs and like five classical etudes and a few pop songs and a few fusion songs and stuff like that. And a bunch of guitar licks and good luck. We wish you the best. That was kind of the, the vibe.
1: You came out of there, and how did you then get into the industry itself? Because, I mean, you you now have a little bit of knowledge in guitar. Yeah. (laughs) Being a former drummer uh, and having studied underneath a pianist, it's a really eclectic mix of musical influence going in. Where do you go with yourself at that point to get into the industry itself? Like, how did that transition happen?
5: Uh, I mean for so for after I got out of that I just hustled and tried to play guitar for a living I was like if I could only learn how to play guitar enough to where people I could have a music career that would be amazing well I figured that out in like year one and it took me like another 10 years to realize that I had figured it out in year one I mean I was teaching guitar lessons I was playing you know gigs around town etc in all kinds of everywhere anywhere I could play you know and then like kind of after year 10 or 11 or 12, maybe, like, I I realized, I was like, oh, I was, I. what am I doing? Like, this is now I'm just spinning wheels, you know? And so that's when I started getting interested in the business side of music. People had always kind of viewed me as an organizer, I I think, in Atlanta a little bit, just because of my military background. I wasn't like a a total, you know, flake, I guess. (laughs) Like, I mean, I'd answer emails very quickly. And, you know, I there was just that general professionalism thing, I think, that the military sort of beat into me. I then decided um, I had an opportunity to get involved and start the Georgia Players Guild. Uh, My friend Travis, who's no longer a partner at the time, he brought me on as like a, a partner. And so that got me into the tribute band world. And so at the time we were just playing at our little home theater over time, I saw the ability to expand that. I started learning about the all the different uh, booking conferences that sort of exist out there. Um, all the, you know, people like South Arts and all sorts of, you know, fundraising meccas that, you know, distribute funds all over the place to support the arts that's kind of how it all spun from there. And uh, eventually my partner left uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, or and so it's kind of been my ship to, to run ever since.
1: And just before the pandemic, you had launched a couple of different aspects of your business as well. You had diversified prior to the pandemic, which kind of floated you through the pandemic, right?
5: That's right. So uh, in November of 2019, I started Shindig My Event, which is a entertainment booking service, if you will, a staffing service for like musicians. My stepfather's in the staffing business. So I kind of started learning about like what he did. And I was like, hmm, maybe I could apply this to the music world. So we uh, started in, in, like I said, in November 2019. Obviously, it was like the worst time to ever start a business (laughs) (laughs) but we had enough traction with some of the wedding and event brands that I had created shortly before then that we folded underneath the umbrella of Shindig that sort of floated us through, you know, uh, the pandemic because people were still going to get married regardless of anything. And they were going to figure out a way to do it that was safe and, and gather with friends that was as safe as possible. And so, you know, we, we might've been on one side of, uh, outdoor venue playing, you know, 100, you know, 100 or 200 feet away from uh, a group of people that were all spaced out like 10 or 12 feet apiece and whatever. But between all that, that definitely ended up floating us because obviously the Performing Arts Center world just crumbled by being diverse and being able to provide entertainment for a variety of situations such as, you know, private events, corporate events, which a lot of those shut down too, but the weddings, etc., That was able to kind of float
1: us through. Let's rewind just a little bit. I want to know how you made the transition from getting out of school to becoming a professional guitar player. Like, how did you start making money at it in the first place?
5: I mean, when I first got out, I was like, I I really didn't have a lot of because I didn't have a lot of built up skills. Like some people just start when they're like eight years old and over the course of high school, they get good enough to play a blues. And all of a sudden they're kind of hireable. I was 100% not that. When I got to AIM, I begged them to get in. And when I graduated AIM, I still wasn't hireable because I was only a year into this, intensely at least. You know, I'd learned a couple of chords, but I've largely, most of my uh, military career, I I wasn't really playing guitar at all. Need like three chords. In order to get hireable, I had to invest a lot of time. During the time in school, I, I would practice on weekends um, for like eight hours a day. I would work Monday through Friday at Starbucks from the five thirty a.m. shift until like twelve because it was an evening school, and then I would practice in the afternoons before the school started at six. When all that was over with, with the one year of school, I would still work uh, at Starbucks during the morning, but then I would practice like eight hours at night. I basically locked myself in a room. Whenever I got my first teaching gig uh, out of school, just teaching retail guitar lessons, I would practice from like eight in the morning until two in the afternoon, and then I would go teach from like when kids got off of school to to like you know eight or nine o'clock at night. I basically practiced in, in an insane amount of time over the course of like two and a half to three years. And that was sort of the bulk of my practicing. And then I kept that up for the first several years of my musical life because I was completely obsessed with guitar. And then I started having like tendinitis issues in my arms that I just couldn't shake. And so for years, actually, I didn't really practice at all. I would just learn enough of the gig to show up and do the gig. You know, I really had to focus on like the kind of the mental game of, of music, you know, and like memorizing things from just listening to it. Spending as little time, because, you know, my hands were my source of making money. So I couldn't overwork them. For a while, I was playing 340 dates a year every year for like, I think it was probably like five or six years. Um, in addition to all of the playing um, on weekends, on some Saturdays, I was doing three and four gigs a Saturday. Breakfast over here, lunch over there, dinner over there, you know, like just hopping around as fast as I could. But I had to memorize and like internalize all the music because I couldn't actually sit and doink it out. Or I could very do a very minimal amount of uh, work for that before my arms were like, hey, you're overstressing me because you have to play three times a day for three hours a piece, you know, challenging.
1: And I, and, and I mean, just a straight grind. Yeah. Which, just, is, which is so key in... In breaking into the industry in so many ways, it's just to, to do the grind, put in the time, put in the effort. Right.
5: It's underrated. <laughs> even even though everybody knows all these, you know, I, I, the grind, the hustle, all these like super catchy words that we all use now. W- whenever I was coming up, it, I don't, I never really heard those words as much. It's like, oh, you got to, you know, you got to do all these things. I guess maybe the uh, evolution of social media has kind of made it a thing and, and, you know, made it a catchy word. But I didn't really think I just. I just thought of it as just like, this was my job. this is my chosen profession. These are the things that are required. I am here, I need to be you know at a, I need to be at Z, so I have to figure out the rest in between.
1: You said you started to get interested in the business side, right. What was intriguing to you about the business side i i I guess because of my military
5: again, military. Also, my dad was kind of a uh, a hard one, if you will. You know, I was the kid that got woken up by my two younger brothers every Saturday morning at like 730. And I would come down to a couple of eggs and a biscuit. And then immediately after that, it was like, all right, now get to work until at least probably 12 or one before I get to do anything cool. So that's, the, that was just what I had. And, and And it was like, every Sunday was mow the grass, pull weeds, Water the flowers, wash both of the cars, scrub the wheels with like a toothbrush, like insane stuff. I don't I don't recommend (laughs) it.
1: I mean, there was obviously some value to it (laughs) because it instilled a work ethic that has created your place in the industry for you.
5: Yeah. I mean, 100%. There was one day I remember I had a conversation with my dad and I really like chastised him for it. And then there was like a few years later, I had another conversation with my dad and I said, thank you. I I think that willing to work kind of thing then kind of pushed me into knowing more about details of an event, because if you're a guitar player showing up, you're not You're just like, I'm just a guitar player and da 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 da. And I I got, I'm I'm real like, I got annoyed at other being in situations that were just kind of unprofessional and very poorly ran businesses. And so then it just instilled me to like, well, if you're that upset about it all the time and you don't, and you don't like your time wasted all the time. And you're not willing to put up with your time being wasted all the time, and accept that this is just the rules of engagement for unfortunately a, a lot of different organizations, then you should start your own. And so when the, that little seed was planted in my brain, I just couldn't get rid of it. That's when the Georgia Players Guild opportunity kind of showed up. You know, I also got to see some really great organizations run extremely well. Like uh, I right before I basically came on as a partner with the Georgia Players Guild at the time, I had just finished a two-month run with Jeremy and Clay from the Equinox Orchestra, which shout out to those guys for being such cool people, which I know you know. I watched them run a pretty tight ship and one of the better-ran ships that I think I'd ever seen. I remember waking up early, basically every morning. uh, I was a pretty early riser compared to the rest of the guys. I would come out to the front side of the tour bus while we're rolling through Montana, and there was Jeremy with his laptop open, already open, already a cup of coffee done, plowing through emails and calling people on the phone, finding gigs, doing a thing. And I was like, "There's, I, this is a guy that I want to talk to and I want to know more about what he does. And, and I want to try and absorb some of this energy because this is my kind of energy. After that two months of being on the road, which I did not know them before I did, literally they called me like a month before and they're like, can you do like two months on the road and just pick up in a month and go for two months and... I just felt like I should do it, so I did it. Uh, it definitely altered the course of me because I got—I saw firsthand how a ship should be ran like that. Because I, I had ideas and I'd been in some situations that, like, I had some pieces of the puzzle, but I didn't have the entire piece. But that got me closer to that faster than anything that I could have—I could have uh, I, I done so on my own.
1: So now, was Jeremy and or Jeremy and Clay were they pretty open to like sharing information with you and kind of guiding you like from a mentorship? type of position
5: yeah they totally were i mean i remember so i would we were on road playing all these venues all these theaters and stuff i was like what is this I was like, how are you doing this? I was like, there's something that I, you know, it's not like you're just calling all these theaters and be like, hey, are you available on this date? I was like, what's the thing? And so they told me about Live on Stage at the time. I think was that was the tour that we had done or uh, worked with them, Live Arts or Live on Stage, and sort of how that system worked. Then I, I found out about how they kind of filled in some of the gaps of that. After this, I took it back. I joined Georgia Players Guild immediately after that. And then I was like, hey, there's this whole other world out here that we need to be aware of. And I was like, but they're meeting in New York. And I was like, and I'm going to go to this. So then I I went up on, I went online and tickets at this point were like $1,000 or something to go. I called Jeremy and I was like, hey, you don't happen to have an extra ticket for this, do you? And he's like, you're the first musician that I've ever hired in my entire life that has ever asked for a ticket to APAP to go figure out how this works. Yes, we do have an extra ticket and I would love to give it to you. And I said, I'll make it up to you. I'll find like several people to like come to your booth or something. And I did. I found like two or three presenters at the conference. And I was like, you need to go check out this band. They're really great. And I was like, you know, and I just like hyped them up for, and it probably amounted to nothing. I have no idea. I never actually followed up on that. But I got three or four presenters to go to their booth and they were like, oh my God, you, you actually brought people to the booth. That's really cool of you. I was like, well, you gave me a free thousand dollar ticket to go watch this thing or whatever it was, $750. I can't remember what it was. But and I just remember walking down the exhibit halls day one, you know, in my naivety, like I had no idea. I was like, I'm just going to walk down and I'm going to write down all the booking agents that might be really good for the Georgia Players Guild. And by like the end of row one, my thumbs were like falling off. Like I was so tired of typing <laughs> and I was like, you know. Now, if you've ever been to APAP, you know what it's about. I mean, it's just this rows of ex, uh, expo hall booths of people selling shows. And, uh, and some of them are like in the tribute world. Some of them are like dance and, you know, it's like all kinds of stuff, everything really. And I was just so overwhelmed. And then day two, I showed back up in the exhibit hall and I walked around it again. And I was like, I can do this. First day I was like, I, there's no way. And then somewhere like at the end of day one, walking into day two, I was like, I could do this for Georgia players go I could do this
1: and you did uh you did conferences for a year or so year two after that right and then you've started doing conferences now that they're back in real life right what do you view as the most valuable thing about attending conferences
5: it's a matter of perception and like having a realistic expectation and stepping into it when we all go into a conference for the first time the first thing that you're you're there to do in your mind is like, I'm going to sell my show and everybody's going to buy it and it's going to be amazing. They're going to hear me and they're going to see my thing and they're going to be like, wow, I just have to have you. (laughs) That's not really the case. Uh, You know, sorry for anybody out there that's new uh, to this world or whatever. Um, I went into it with like kind of high aspirations. I had figured out a little bit from the first APAP experience with Jeremy that it was really uh, there was a relationship or a knowledge uh, foundation sort of thing that needed to be established. So I went into year one and I remember going to Western Arts Alliance for the first time. Western Arts Alliance is probably the most appointment-driven conference in the entire conference circuit, as in people make reservations with you at your booth to come and talk to you about whatever it is you do that, that they like or whatever. And if you don't have relationships, you don't get those appointments. The first day, Western Arts Alliance, that I went to, I sat in my booth and for hours I watched presenters zip by me to the left, right back by me to the right, not even taking a moment to have discovery or like walk around and explore, they had full calendars of eight meetings or more a day, just bouncing from each exhibitor to exhibitor. And I just remember sitting there and like after day one, I was just, I was so beat. Like I, on the inside, I was like, I just spent all this money to come to Los Angeles not one person is going to even walk by my booth to say hello and just introduce themselves and whatever else. And then I remember at the end of day one, you know, in the the bar areas of like where the uh, conference is, it's kind of like, it comes like a lounge, like where you can kind of meet and shuffle with people and stuff and uh, get to know people. And I remember David Wan and seeing me just sitting kind of like by my lonesome. He's like, hey, you're new here, huh? And so we started talking And I noticed that he was like the coolest dude ever, very quickly. And also I figured out he was a very connected dude very quickly, later on I figured out even more. But at the time he was like, so is this like the only conference you're going to? And I was like, no. And he's like, I was like, I'm going to Arts Midwest, I'm going to NCPC, I'm going to South Arts, I'm going to APAP, I'm going to and he was like, and this is your organization and like you're paying for all this essentially? Yeah, and I was like, yeah. And he looked at me, He was like, well, you got balls. (laughs) you know uh i mean in a sum of words it might not have been exactly his words but i think it was close uh and uh you know because that's if you add if you know how much conferences cost that adds up pretty quickly to being you know kind of over five figures with all the expenses and going to these kinds of things and the first uh go round, i mean I, i got my teeth kicked in i mean from a perspective of like oh did you Book a lot of things. I, no, I didn't really book much of it all. But I figured out very shortly in from that talk with David, which sort of cemented it, that it really was about just getting to know people. I, I wouldn't recommend doing what I did <laughs> to everyone. Uh, I mean, I went, I, that's just kind of how I am anyway. It's like when I figure out that I'm going in a direction, it's like a thousand miles an hour in one direction uh, until I hit brick walls to tell me that I need to change my approach. You have to go into this with a, a, an idea of like getting to know people getting to know their communities more like what it is because what ends up happening is you become an encyclopedia as an artist or an agent um, or an aspiring artist or an agent that wants to get into this world. You become an encyclopedia of like, Oh, it's this presenter and they have this many seats and they're a municipal ran theater or they're a non-for-profit or, and their demographic in the area is this. And this is about the amount of people that show up uh, or the amount of people in their area that shows up and you know like you start learning all these things about people and that's what I find most interesting about the conferences. And that's what gets me excited to go every year because, you know, at the end of it, you are exhausted because you're just inputting all this information. I love learning about communities and how the theater sort of like intersects them and, and like challenges them to whether through programming or, uh, or whatever else. Like, I, I love it. I think, it's, I think it's super, super cool.
1: That kind of leads me right into another question is, oh good? do you view the, the industry as more relational or more transactional.
5: Well, I think that question uh, really comes down to the philosophy. Truly, everybody will say relationship, but I think uh, most people, deep down, some people, depending on you know how big your agency is and and how you know how big a roster of shows do you have, I think deep down some people would say if if they could not be judged, they would say it's transactional. But the truth is, is that it is relation relational, like it is relationship based. It has to be. There has to be some sort of trust between the agent and the presenter that the show that you're going to deliver is not only going to be appropriate for their stage and be amazing and appropriate for their audiences uh, and good for their audiences, it has to also sell. I'm giving a keynote at North Carolina Presenters, their what they used to call the bull chat, um, which is like the off year. Um, I got tapped to be the keynote speaker this year in November, and then also I'm giving a class uh, next week in uh, Arts Northwest this year about how w- we as artists and agents have to equip the theaters with 21st century relevant content that they can use, and then the theater has a responsibility in using that content to deliver results. It's a 100% a, a un- like more unifying than ever. I feel like from the short amount of time I've been in the history, because I've talked to people where it's like, oh, I used to buy bands and they would send me a press photo and a bio. And I'm like, dude, those days are over. You have to have compelling video content to drive ticket sales and to get the attention of the consumer now more than ever. And so, you know, so there's responsibility on both sides, but one feeds into the other. And if you're a presenter and you're looking at an artist and you like, you're like, man, this actually kind of looks really cool. What do you like? It can't just be like what you see at the showcase anymore. Like when there's a showcase at a conference, you can't say, wow, that was really incredible. I'm going to sell that at my theater. What's your promotional materials? Oh, I've got these, I've got some really great photos. And here's an amazing bio talking about how I've played with X, Y, and Z. And here's a very mediocre video of what I just saw. Well, that's not going to work anymore. Uh, you have to have like an undeniable video that obviously instills excitement in whatever it is that they're doing so that they can do their job in selling the show.
1: If you and I were to go back in time. Okay. And you were able to give yourself one piece of advice right at that moment where you'd been gigging and decided that it was time for you to get into the business side of it. Ooh. What bit of guidance would you give yourself at that point?
5: Good Lord. I would probably say um, to me personally uh, or anybody else, I I think would also benefit for this, but I, I think I would, I think I would say patience. You have to have patience. If it's not today, maybe it's tomorrow. And if it's not tomorrow, maybe it's the next day. You have to have patience in building your shows. You have to have patience in dealing with the people involved in your shows, you have to have patience in dealing with presenters. You have to have de- patience in dealing with the knowledge of your band and or your artists or whatever it is that you're trying to to to, to get out. Like you got to have patience in that word traveling. You have to have patience in ex like when you have a presenter so close to wanting to buy one of your shows and then they decide they don't want to after they basically told you that they were going to you have to have patience all this isn't built in three minutes you know or even three days what gets me excited every day to work is that i know that the cumulative effect of all the work that i'm doing and exercising patience in everything that i do will one day lead to a desired result that's favorable to me and also hopefully the people that I you know that I work with patience I think is is the word that like continues to bounce around my head when I sit down and send 50 emails to presenters talking about the shows because it's the time of year and that you reach out to people because a lot of people were on traditional booking cycles still it's it's just that's the word that comes to me is patience
1: Well, I think that's a great bit of advice uh, and and great guiding point for anybody coming into the industry is that it it really is a long game and that patience is incredibly key in that long game. Thank you for being a part of this today. Thank you for spending some time with us. Hearing your background and hearing how you got into it and and the lessons that you've learned along the way, I know that's going to be helpful to some people coming up.
5: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
4: There were moments of this interview that were, I thought, were absolutely heartwarming, uh, and then I really enjoyed just hearing Jacob talk about our industry, and you know, just solidifying the fact that not only do we have a great industry, uh, we all have some really cool and nice friends. I mean, just the the Equinox boys getting him to APAP um, because he reached out and asked. And then, you know, David Wan and just talking to him at WAH, and knowing that those relationships have continued years on and being able to give those mentorships. And sometimes I, I think I get a little focused on like my relationships in the industry and starting to realize that, you know, most of the people that have been very cool with me and like very like in that mentor relationship are doing that with dozens of other people and really just have an interest in seeing our industry prosper and grow.
2: Yeah, Kevin, when he was talking about his first experience at WA and how all the other presenters were going from meeting to meeting and just not even really glancing at him, um, I I kind of felt that. And and I have always been a presenter. I've never been on the other side, but I very rarely, in the, especially the early years, took a lot of meetings. I I would say no. I'm just gonna because I found that I didn't need to. And so I started to see those people who had those booths that were maybe new, like Jacob was. And I would always intentionally go over and say hi and they're like, Oh, are you interested? They'd start with the pitch, Are you interested? And I'd look at their marketing machine like, No, I'm we're not gonna work together, but I'd like to get to know you. <laughs> so I would have said hi if I was at
1: that wall with with Jacob. Such a cold shutdown, Brian. Well, no, it's being honest and truthful. <laughs> honest. You know, yeah. I,
2: I'm i not going to yeah. miss, I don't want to mislead anybody and, and think that, oh, I might book your show and get them all worked up and be like, mm-hmm. when I never had a, a thought to do that. But I think that's important and, and hearing this interview and, and Jacob describe that, I think it's even more important in knowing what we know doing this podcast about how important relationships are. And even if it's not building a relationship directly with that person, person who's alone in their booth or the first time, you might be able to connect them with somebody else, another colleague that would be a great partner for them. I've been more intentional now when I go to conferences and things to even say hello to someone who looks like they're they're just you know being ignored and passed over.
1: I actually met Jacob for the first time when he was at that first APAP with Equinox. And so whenever he then was at his first Arts Midwest after that, I immediately set a meeting with him there, and then again at APAP just because I I I wanted more time to to get to know him. I really love the approach of him looking and saying, "Can I come with you to the Equinox Boys?" And the Ex- Equinox Boys being gracious as they are to do so, and invest in themselves, investing in someone else. And you know, he he mentioned that Jeremy throughout that tour, uh, Jeremy Davis from uh, the fabulous Equinox Orchestra was really generous with his knowledge and with his time on that tour and explaining things and talking through things with Jacob. And that that mentorship piece has been a staple in this podcast is so incredibly important to the this industry moving forward.
3: Yeah, what struck me about Jacob's story was like the balance between like guts and patience. I don't and I don't know if that's the best way to describe that, but he's like has so many moments where like he just took a leap and he tried something new and he worked really hard at it. But then his advice at the end about being patient and how it takes time to cultivate and grow and build something, it doesn't happen overnight. It just really struck me The multiple moments throughout his story and talking about his career, it's like he took the big leap. He had the guts to do so, go to the conferences without like any support, knowing what he was doing, learn the guitar, do all these different things. Um, but then he has grown in such wisdom that it takes patience to to really develop these things over time. I really... I thought it was just so interesting and like a great lesson to walk away with from your conversation today.
0: Yeah, I've got some things to say. One, thank you for your service because dang, (laughs) Um, it sounds like he's, you know, had seven careers at this point, you know, but what really stuck out to me is that like so many other people, he wants to be in this industry. There were so many opportunities for him to just like walk away and, you know, not have all of this pressure um, to hang on. But like, I think when you start out secretly buying a drum set and then hiding it in a church, like, I feel like, you know, that the story's going to pay off. (laughs) But I mean, like just describing like the amount of work that has gone in to creating a life that is sustainable off of a guitar. I've I've said this so many times, like, it, you know, it looks so sexy, you know, (laughs) like in hindsight, but like thinking of, You know, getting up and working that first Starbucks shift and then practicing and then going to school, you know, and then teaching all day. I mean, I want to say 24-7, but I do think that he slept in there somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) And like that desire to really want to be here and to build all of this, I think all of us have in some way, but I really heard that. In this interview
1: well and there's there are parts of his story that i i think because he and i know each other so well didn't make it into the interview he was nationally touring guitar player before getting with equinox at one point he played with derek trucks he was in a band and the guitar player for a band that was on america's got talent and that were a finalists on america's got talent and so like he had made his place in the industry as a professional guitar player before ever getting started with Georgia Players Guild and could have easily gone down that path. He really could have gone so many different Avenues with his career, and just found that he loved this organization end of it, and and dove into that path.
2: Josh, I really loved your question about uh, the relationship and transaction kind of business, and and I enjoyed hearing Jacob work that out. He almost debated himself. He took like both sides, went back and forth, <laughs> and then ultimately landed on that it is relationship based, relational based, is how he put it. And the reason is because the most successful business, at least from his experience, has been built on trust, and that. That was a two-way trust. It was trusting that the people he's going to do business with, the presenters are going to do the right thing and, you know, treat the artists the right way and so forth, but also the presenters trusting in what he's got to provide. Um, And so that two-way trust is really important in the business, as we all know.
4: Oh, there's one thing that I did want to touch on that sort of, I think, was a little glossed over in that interview was that conversation about like the grind and hustle. I love the way that he puts that because he started talking about that for him, he always viewed it as a job. Um, which meant that it had structure, that it was, oh, you know, I need to do this then and this, 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 and this. And that's something that I have had a lot of conversations with young artists, you know, especially coming out of college, because they're, when you're in college, like you have that structure. Um, And so he built that structure um, outside of that. And I thought that was a really interesting way to do that. It's like, oh, this is my job. This is how I focus on that.
1: Well, guys, thanks for hanging out and chatting with me about Jacob. Jacob, thank you for being a part of this today. We look forward to the next time here at There's No Business Like.
0: All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Like Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Vanhoek. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslike.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslike.com. Do I sound out bus i every time I type it? Yeah sure do. Stay in touch, my friends.
2: To his military background and his and the hard work that his father uh, made him do during, you know, doing chores on Sundays. And I do have to say, I'm going to bring some of that to my children this Sunday, kids, get your toothbrushes ready. Those <laughs> tires need to be cleaned.
3: Yeah. yeah, Jacob, can you come to my house and teach my son how to make his bed? That'd be great. appreciate that.
2: <laughs> do his parents know what he does, and do they know about the drum set today? Because they're going to hearing this episode. They're going to want to hear about their kid. It's like, oh, we thought he sold insurance. <laughs> <laughs>